Um, a very good morning to all of those around the country in our six or seven states or more. Those of you that have been joining us, we love you very much. Thank you for joining us once again. We're pleased and humbled by you joining us. And a very special good morning and God's blessing upon all of you from all over the world who have been watching and listening for some time. We love you very much. Thank you for joining us. We're humbled by your presence and thank you for uh, contacting us. We appreciate that. We thank you and pray for you always, of course. Let us stand to honor the reading of the word of the Lord in our exposition of the Gospel of John. Today we conclude chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. John chapter 3, 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. That is, he, God, gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on them. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you as you have commanded on Resurrection Sunday to honor the conquest of God the Son and his divine mission, of which this gospel is all about. We thank you for those locally about our country, and in particular those who are around the world who have been joining us for the exposition of the gospel, the true biblical gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his faithful servant, John. May everything that is said and done here this morning bring praise and honor and glory to you and to proclaim the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of your revealed, divinely inspired word. We pray for the salvation of many who will hear the proclamation of the Gospel of John, and we pray that our brothers and sisters abroad who are watching and listening, their minds, their souls, their hearts will be filled and will be strengthened by your spirit and the truth of your word. And so may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of he who is the word made flesh, we pray. Amen. So this verse begins what many theologians to be something of an explanation, or as many commentaries will say, something of an extended reflection on the part of John the Apostle, the author of this gospel, John the Evangelist. So just like verses 16 to 21 Many over the centuries have come to believe, and I believe there's much to recommend their conclusion. They've come to believe that this closing section or passage of chapter 3 are actually, once again, the, word, the inspired words of the Apostle John. It's something of what I, I like to perhaps refer to as an inspired commentary, as verses 16 and 21 are believed by many to be. So this passage, concluding the chapter, verses 31 to 36, there is good reason to believe, once again, we're hearing 
The Holy Spirit of God speaking by way of John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel. John the Baptizer's recorded words would have ended in last week's passage in verse 30. So this passage, if you examine it carefully, and we should, we will, there does appear to certainly appear to be something of a summary of all the truth that we were given in chapter 3. And if you notice several of the themes of the entirety of the chapter that John and Jesus taught, several of the themes of the entire chapter are all sort of brought together and concluded here. There are enough similarities between the prologue and these verses. There are enough similarities between verses 16 and 21 in this passage to suggest these are the words of John the Apostle. So by these commentary verses, if I can refer to them that way, John is trying to do something very important. He's trying to provide you with more information. He's trying to give you more sound teaching uh, concerning the person and work of Christ, his divine mission. He wants to give you even more information that's going to help you to comprehend the big picture, the power and the plan of God working in and through the mission of Jesus in his arrival in the flesh in the first century A.D. He wants you to understand what some may refer to as the unseen hand of God behind it all. The divine plan of God and the mission and incarnation of Jesus. So now the Apostle John, in this explanation he gives here, well, he's actually continuing with the lesson we received from John the Baptizer last week. John the Apostle wants to continue giving you the differences between Jesus and John the Baptizer. The contrast between John the Baptist, the Messiah's herald, and Jesus, the Messiah himself, now that he has arrived and he's on mission. So John the Apostle wants to continue the lesson John the Baptizer gave us last week. Again, he just wants to give you further explanation of why Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Word made flesh, why he has to become greater, why he has to continue to increase. And John the Baptizer, his herald, must continue to decrease. John had the stage. He had center stage. He had the spotlight. Pardon me for using those expressions. But now that Jesus is here and he has been baptized in his human nature as well as his deity, he's filled with the Spirit. He's on the last leg of his journey to finish his redemptive mission. He must become greater. He must become the focus. He must become the center of the world stage in God's divine plan in what's happening in Israel and what's happening in old Palestine. And why? Why must he continue to become greater and increase? Well, John gives us a foundational fundamental answer, and that is by virtue of the fact that he is from above. And therefore, the logical, rational, reasonable conclusion that we should come to is that he is above all because he is a from above, he is above all. Verse 31, he who comes from above, that is Jesus, he is above all, therefore he is above all. He who is of the earth, that is John, and all mere mortal human beings like us, but John in particular, he who is of the earth, John the baptizer, he is from the earth, he speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven, the Word made flesh, Jesus, he, again, is above all. So let's focus on this one phrase at a time. He or the one who comes from above is above all. There is a very, very important Koine Greek word that we encounter here again. This word that we encountered earlier in the chapter. A word chosen by Jesus himself. He who comes from above. From above is anothane. 
that wonderful word that I gave you when we had a look at the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. From above, does that strike a chord? Does that ring a bell? Does it jog your memory? It should. Right away you should be reminded of chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anothain, born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so now here in verse 33, he who comes from above is above all. Now, anothain, as I told you earlier, when we were exploring the early part of the chapter, it can mean again or it can mean above. Jesus means both, I believe. You must be born again from above. But anothain in this context, of course, means from above. So, what does John want us to do? He wants us to do this. You should put together the two truth statements from chapter 3, verse 3, from what he just gave you in chapter 3, verse 31. Put both of those truth statements together. And what do you arrive at? You arrive at this. The new birth from above can be experienced only by faith in the one who is from above. That's a conclusion that we should be reaching. Let me read that again. The new birth to be born again from above can be experienced only by faith in the one who is from above. To be born anothain, you must have faith in the one who is anothain, from above. Now, all others, you and I, fallen members of fallen humanity, mere flesh and blood, mortal human beings, all others, including John the Baptist, are from the earth below. That's John's point. If the Word made flesh is from above, and He is, then therefore, by virtue of that fact, He is above all. It is a very obvious statement to Jesus' eternal deity and Jesus' sovereign supremacy. Again, there are those these days who will challenge the deity of Jesus being proclaimed in this gospel. You have got to be kidding me. Pardon me for being a bit blunt. The entire point of this gospel is the full deity as well as the full humanity of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who is God the Son, who is the light who came into the world, which is divine, who is the very personification and source of all true truth, God's revealed truth. He is divine. This gospel from beginning to end teaches and proclaims the full deity of Jesus the Christ. And that's not the only time that John will confront us with the deity of Jesus, even in these few verses that concludes the chapter. So in the immediate context, think the context of the chapter. Think the context of chapter 3. In the immediate context, context, pardon me, which left off where we left off last week, this incident involving John the Baptist and his followers, remember? From that lesson, last week, in last week's passage, John the Apostle wants to continue that lesson. John the Baptist must become less. John the Baptist must decrease because he is from the earth. And therefore, he belongs to the earth. That is to say, he is merely a creature. He is merely a created human being like the rest of us. As wonderful a man as he is, a spirit-filled man of God and called man of God that he is, nevertheless, he's just simply a mere mortal human being. He's from the earth, therefore he belongs to the earth. And Jesus, however, is completely and totally different. 
in contrast and comparison. Jesus is the divine word made flesh, the one who is in the beginning, the one who is with God, the one who was God, the one whom all things that exist exist because he created it. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is infinitely greater, therefore, in every way. For he is from above. He is divine. He is God. Again, the full deity of Jesus the Christ boldly proclaimed here. He who is from above, Jesus, once more. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? He who is from above, he who comes from above. Sound familiar, this truth statement? It should. Remember the words of Jesus in this very chapter? Chapter 3, verse 13. And no one has ascended into heaven but he, Jesus, who descended from heaven. In other words, the one who is from above, who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of Man. He descended from heaven because that is where he came from, his divine origins. In other words, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is from above. He all but bald-faced states his deity to Nicodemus in that original conversation at the beginning of chapter 3. And recall Jesus' divine origins from above. All of this information is given to us in the prologue, if you remember. And so this is another direct connection back to the truth that John gave us in the prologue. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. Everything that you encounter in this gospel must be seen through the truth or by way of the truth that John gave you in the first 14 verses of this gospel, the prologue. And so, the one who is from above, Jesus, his divine origin, it of course defines and informs who he is, what he does, what he says, in every way. We must never forget his true identity. That's what John is saying. I'm reminding you of his true identity, and I'll keep reminding you of his true identity, and he will keep reminding you of his true identity. Never forget his true identity. And because of his true divine identity, therefore, he is above all. What does that statement mean? It shouldn't take you long to come to the conclusion of what it means. It means Jesus holds divine authority. He holds and possesses divine power. He holds and possesses and exercises divine sovereign rule. He is not a creature of the earth. He is from above. He is the creator. Remember the prologue? Let's go back there for a moment. Verse 3. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. That's who He is. Therefore, He is infinitely greater than John and any mere mortal human being, no matter how magnificent a servant of God they may be. So, John the Baptist, he's a wonderful man. Was a wonderful man, is a wonderful man. I don't know about you, but I love him very, very much. He's one of the greatest persons who ever lived. In fact, the Bible, one of the highest assessments of anyone recorded in the Scripture, is given to John the Baptizer. From the words of Jesus Christ Himself, I tell you a solemn truth of every human being who has entered this world through the womb of their mother, you will find no one greater than John the Baptizer. It's an amazing assessment. But as wonderful as he was and is, nevertheless, he's only a human being. He is of the earth. He is from the earth. Therefore, he speaks of the earth. 
even though John was filled with the Holy Spirit of God while he was still in his mother's womb. He spoke the words of God, the words that God the Spirit gave to him. Nevertheless, dear brother John is still only a mere mortal human being. Jesus, however, what's the point here? Jesus is no mere mortal human being only. He is a human being, but He is also divine. Never forget the truth of the two natures of the one person of Christ. Jesus, however, compared to John, He is no mere mortal human being only. Perfectly human, perfectly divine. He is anothane. He is from above. John, however, speaks as one who is from the earth. That is, John was a wonderful preacher. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a wonderful prophet. He was the last great prophet of the Old Covenant era, straddling this transition period into the New Covenant. He called people to repent, to come to God Almighty personally, to seek His forgiveness of their sins, to turn their life about in preparation for receiving the Messiah, God's Son, who was to enter the world. He baptized people with water faithfully as a symbol of this. But John did not come from heaven. He did not enjoy the deep counsels of God Almighty in eternity. He didn't come from heaven. His origins were not from heaven. Nor could John the baptizer, as wonderful as he was, offer the new birth from above. He could preach it, teach it, proclaim it, prepare people for it, but he couldn't offer it. He couldn't offer the long prophesied renewal of a human being's soul by water and spirit as Jesus taught. Only the one from above could do this. Only the one who came in from above, who came down from above, can provide the new birth. Only the one who came from above can speak with absolute authenticity and authority authority about heavenly things. Why? Well, what's the natural, reasonable, logical conclusion? Because only he can actually witness and testify to what he himself has personally seen and heard in eternity, from eternity past, in the personal dwelling place of God the Creator, the outside of time and space as you and I know it and experience it. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard, that is Jesus the Messiah, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. That's a rough verse. Or let me offer you this translation. What he has seen and heard, to this he bears testimony. That is to say, the one who comes from above, the one who comes from heaven, he testifies to what he has seen and heard there. And so how has his testimony and his witness been received? By fallen humanity, John tells us in the same breath, no man receives his witness, no man accepts his testimony. Again, does this sound familiar? He's all but quoting Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know. We bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. Should remind you of something we've heard before in the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 11. He came to His own, and those who were even His own did not receive Him. His witness is testimony to God's truth, that is, Jesus. Witness and testimony to the truth of God, the truth from God. It was largely rejected, and apparently is largely rejected by fallen humanity. And what's the reason for that? Again, let me jog your memory from chapter 3, verse 19. They loved the darkness more than the light because their deeds were and are evil. And the prologue has already told us 
that the Son's witness was not received is not received. Here's the truth we're driving at. Not to receive His witness is not to receive Him. Not to receive Him is not to receive His truth. He gave us the Word of God. The Word of God is and was His Word. He is the Word of God made flesh. So again, verse 32, it's a stinging rebuke. It's a stinging indictment of all of fallen humanity rebelling against He who is the ultimate revealer of God's truth. 33, He who has received His witness has set His seal to this, that God is true. That's a very interesting little statement there. He or she who has received His witness, who does embrace the truth given to us by Jesus, that person has set his or her seal to this fact, to this truth, that God is true, that God is the truth, that God is truthful. So nevertheless, praise God, there are exceptions. And praise God for the exceptions. And I pray there are many exceptions in this room. And there are many exceptions watching and listening. There are those who do accept. There are those who do submit to the Divine Son's testimony, to the Divine Son's witness, to the Divine Son's revealed truth. So what is this very interesting little verse saying about the one who receives the witness of the Son, who is from above, and this statement about God's truth, God's truthfulness? Well, what John is saying is this. It's very important. By accepting and receiving Jesus' witness, by accepting and receiving Jesus' testimony, by believing, appropriating the truth, believing in His witness, believing in His testimony, believing in His words, what Jesus has seen and heard from eternity, the person who believes in this, the person who receives Jesus' testimony, is setting something of a seal. That's what John is saying. The person who believes in His truth, receives His witness, receives His testimony, sets a seal that certifies that God is truth. That God is the truth. All truth comes from Him. And that He is truthful. Notice He says, not only that Jesus is truthful, He is, but that God is truthful. Father, Son, Spirit is truthful. As D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, that to believe Jesus is to believe God. End quote. Beautiful. Exactly. The person who believes Jesus the Christ attests that God is true. God is truthful. Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God's truth. Jesus is the very personification of God's truth. Because God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is truth. The source of all truth. And as Edward Clink writes in his commentary, Therefore, we can offer Him no more acceptable worship than the faithful confession that He is true. That He is truthful. 34. For He whom God has sent, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, for He whom God, that is God the Father, has sent, speaks the words of God. For He has given the Spirit without measure. Now that is a very interesting verse that we're going to have to unpack first part and second part. First statement, second statement. First statement. For He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Let me give you something of a paraphrase while doing no damage, I trust, to the text. For God the Son, whom God the Father has sent, 
He, God the Son, speaks the words of God the Father. After all, according to the prologue, He is the eternal Word made flesh, the very light, the very Word, the very revealer of God who was and has come into the world. It is the one and only unique Son of the Father who, having been sent by the Father, speaks the words of the Father. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. When you hear the words of Jesus Christ, you are not just listening to a great prophet or a great patriarch or a great moral teacher. When you hear the words of Jesus Christ, you are hearing God the Almighty. To listen to Jesus is to listen to God. Jesus never uttered anything else or anything other than the words of God and the truth of God. A response to the Son is a response to the Father. To believe in the Son, the Word made flesh, is to believe in the Father. Father God, Father and Son are one. Never forget that beautiful, wonderful doctrine of the Trinity. Now this statement, for He gives a spirit of mount without measure. He gives a spirit without measure. What's meant by that? What is He talking about there? With some folks that propose, well, what does this mean that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to uh, believers? Uh, well, he, he does that. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son for believers. That's not what's meant here. This is still about Jesus. I join the camp of those who believe this statement is still about Jesus. So what is meant here? This is most likely a reference to God the Father giving Jesus, God the Son, the Spirit without limit or measure. This is a reference to He who is sent from above in His mission on this earth, being sent the Spirit or given the Spirit without limit or without measure by God the Father. Remember, at Jesus' baptism, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit came and alit upon Him, filling Him in His perfect humanity and remained. He was given the Spirit of God without limit or measure by God the Father. Now, you may ask this question. Please ask this question. It's a good question. Well, how can this be? If Jesus is God the Son, and He is one with the Father, and He is, then He is already one with the Spirit. Yes, you're absolutely right. That is most certainly true. But again, never forget the two natures of the one person of Christ. Remember the two natures of the one person of Christ. Jesus is perfectly divine, the perfect divine Son, the eternal Word, one with the Father and the Spirit, who became flesh, who took upon Himself a human body, and He human nature. Not only is He to be filled with the Spirit in His deity, because He is one with the Spirit, for He is God, He must be filled by the Spirit of God in His human nature, as well as a divine nature. That is what happened at His baptism. So this giving of the Spirit refers to Jesus' perfect human nature at His baptism. The Father sent the Spirit upon the Son. Remember the event of His baptism to equip the Divine Son in His full humanity and His full deity for the completion of His mission. And what's the completion of His mission? To offer salvation to us, to save us from hell. To save us from the judgment which the Father placed into His hands. The judgment that when He returns, He will enact. That judgment. And so the Father gave the Spirit to the Son without any limit, without any measure. That's an amazing thing. Yes, Jesus being the Son, He is a totally unique servant. A totally unique servant of God. A totally unique champion of God. A totally unique person in history. Well, for many reasons, but the one reason specifically mentioned here 
is that Jesus is the one champion of God, the one servant of God, the one person in all of history who received the Spirit from the Father without any limit or measure whatsoever. And if you know your Old Testament history, all throughout redemptive history, as recorded in the Old Testament, God spoke to His people, He spoke to mankind through the patriarchs, through the prophets, through many appointed servants and messengers. And each of these servants, these messengers, these champions, these ambassadors, these prophets, they all, if you recall, received a measure of the Holy Spirit of God that was required for their given task. So the Spirit rested upon each of these people in a measure that was appropriate to their assignment. But John is telling us Jesus is totally different. Jesus is totally unique in every way. That's the point of this passage. Jesus is the one and the only one who received the Spirit of God from the Father without any limit or without any measure. That is why He can be trusted. His words and His truth can be trusted and must be appropriated and obeyed. And yes, of course, remembering the doctrine of the Trinity, which we should never forget, as God the Son and His deity, Jesus is one with the Spirit, just as He is one with the Father. And so it is also, yes, as God, that Jesus possesses limitless, unmeasured access to the Spirit, the Spirit who is God. It's very interesting to note here, in the original language, this phrase here, without measure, in the original Koine Greek, this, which we translate, well, accurately, as without measure, this little phrase here, interestingly enough, is found nowhere else in all of the known Koine Greek language that still exists that we're aware of. So some scholars have proposed, well, was John inspired by the Spirit of God to invent this phrase? Join these words this particular way? We believe Paul was inspired by the Spirit of God to add words and phrases to the Greek language. John may have been inspired to do the same thing. If you translate this literally... I really like the way it translates quite literally from the Greek. God the Father gave God the Son the Spirit without using a measure. As if you're measuring something. He didn't use that. He gave the Spirit into the human nature of the Son without using a measuring cup or a measuring device in any way, shape, or form. And so, what is the conclusion we should come to here? What is John saying? He's saying this, the seal, the warrant, the certification for the truth, the truthfulness of God's unique witness, God's unique champion, Jesus, is this limitless measure of the Spirit of God that the Father gave to the Son for the completion of His divine mission. Verse 35, For the divine Father loves the divine Son, and has given all things into His hand. That is a magnificent verse and a powerful verse. It's an incredible verse. It's an incredible truth statement. Again, one that obviously boldly states the full deity of Jesus. God Almighty the Father, the one and only true living God, the Creator. He was absolute and ultimate reality for all of us, whether we know it or not, and whether we like it or not. He so loves His divine Son, the Son one with the Father, who is from the beginning, that He has given everything into His hand. That's amazing. One that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
It's a perfectly natural conclusion considering, once again, the truth about Jesus that's already been given us in the prologue. Again, the Divine Father, who is God, loves the Divine Son, who is God, and has therefore motivated by that love given all things into His hand. This is the power, this is the authority which the Divine Son has given to Him by the Father. Now this phrase, the Father loves the Son. Yes, folks, that's right. The word love there in the original language is agape. The Father, agape, loves the Son. That's why I believe agape is a love which is from the very person, the very being, the very character and nature of God. And I don't think human beings are capable of this on their own and by themselves. You are capable of this love when you are born again from above, and you are given this love as a gift from God. You are to reciprocate that love back to God. And as Paul would say, shed that love abroad to your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are the recipients of the new birth. It is a transcendent love, the highest, noblest, purest form of love, a holy love, a love that originally is divine and originates in the divine. This is the love that the Father has with the Son, from all of eternity past. This is the perfect loving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of the one Godhead from eternity past. The absolute love of the Divine Father for the Divine Son, for Father and Son are one. And because of His perfect, absolute, transcendent love for His Son, this love shared with the Son, God the Father has given the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to His Son in His human nature, on His mission, without any limit or without any measure. And because of this love of the Father for the Divine Son from eternity past, the Divine Father has placed everything into the hands of the Divine Son. This is bad news for those who hate Jesus. Good news. The best news imaginable for those who love Him and embrace His truth, certifying that God is true. The Divine Father has placed everything into the hands of the Divine Son, Jesus of Nazareth. And that phrase, let me unpack it a bit for you. Given all things, given everything. Kai panta dedokon in the Greek. Panta means all things, everything, all. That is to say this, God Almighty, the Father, the Creator, has given over this entire created universe and everything in it into the hands of the Divine Son. That's right. Jesus Christ has proprietary ownership rights of this entire universe and absolutely everything that it contains. Jesus owns it all. Jesus rules it all. As the great Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2 states, Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father, who gave it all into His hands. As D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, he brings up a very important point. Do you know that absolutely everything in this universe, the meaning and purpose of this universe, the meaning of everything in this, perp in this universe, it all finds its core, its heart, its meaning, its purpose, its origin in the divine love of the divine Father and Son and Spirit from eternity past. It all finds its ultimate source in this agape love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past and now and into eternity future. 
He writes, even the unfolding of all of redemptive history, all that it means, all that it brings, it finds its ultimate source in the loving relationship in the Godhead. That is astounding. And Christ's ownership of it all, given Him by the Father, is permanent. By the way, in the original Greek, the original Greek suggests that Jesus Christ's ownership of everything given to Him by the Father, it's permanent. It's not going away. It's not going anywhere. It's permanent. Verse 36. My oh my, we're actually concluding John chapter 3 today. A magnificent conclusion to this magnificent chapter. But I have news for you. You're about to walk into another magnificent chapter that frankly is just as magnificent as chapter 3 is. In many ways. He or she, they, the one who believes in the Son has, present tense, has eternal life. But he or she, they who do not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on them. And so John, you see what he's doing? He's bringing all of this to a conclusion. He's wrapping the truth up of chapter 3 that's been given to you. So he concludes this magnificent chapter on a magnificent promise to and for believers and something of a frightening warning for those who interestingly, notice he says, not believe, but obey. They go hand in hand. They go hand in glove. They're virtually synonymous. If you're, going to obey in Je- if you're going to obey Jesus, you have to believe in Him. And if you're going to believe in Him, then naturally you're going to obey Him. It's a very fitting and proper finale, isn't it? Let me call it finale. Forgive me for doing that. Very proper and fitting finale or conclusion to the chapter. And this is perhaps one of the hard sayings of the Gospels for people. Because again, what are we confronted with here? It's black and white. Nothing in between, folks. Again, we're only given two ways, two destinations, two paths, two destinies, two conclusions, two and only two, one or the other. It's eternal life, zoen aionion, and all that that means and all that that brings, or it's the eternal judgment, the wrath of a just and holy God. Only two alternatives. Genuine saving faith, John says, or willful, defiant disobedience. And yes, as you can clearly see here, as it is clearly stated, something you may not hear much of anymore, tragically and regrettably, but yes, as you clearly see here, the message of a looming or impending judgment is part of the gospel. It's right here. There's no denying it. The message of a final, looming, or impending judgment is part of the gospel. Is part of the true, faithful, biblical gospel message. How in the world will you understand the good news if you don't come to terms with the hard news or the bad news first? Here's the good news. Praise God for the good news that the merciful, gracious God sent the one who is from above, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the divine Son to save us from this judgment. The good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from the judgment, to pardon us from that very judgment, judgment that He Himself will carry out upon His return. Remember, all things have been handed into the Son. What does that mean? All things, even the judgment, has been placed into His hands by the Father. 
So yes, the true biblical gospel message is that not only is Jesus Christ the divine Savior, He is the divine judge. The judge who stepped down off the bench and took the place of the condemned. And at the end of the final assizes, as human history is wrapped up as we know it, when the divine Son returns, it will all be the divine judge. And those who refused Him, those who obeyed Him, those who continued in their self-worship and their rebellion against Him and the Father, they will be judged by His hands as the divine plan is completed. So what does John leave us with? Genuine faith, genuine repentance, genuine belief. This submission to His truth, this submission to this new birth from above, it is the way, the one and only way to inherit eternal life. Or as Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you recall, to see or to enter into the kingdom of God, the perfect world at the end which knows no end. Perfect people, perfect animals, perfect nature, perfect creation in the personal dwelling place of God with no barriers in between to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. A life that has transcendent quantity and a life that has transcendent quality. Zoen aionion. Eternal life. And this is commanded by God Himself repeatedly in this Gospel, even up to this point, chapter 3. And so a willful, deliberate refusal to repent, a deliberate refusal to believe, to have faith in the Son, is as just as much an act of disobedience as it is unbelief. To not believe, to refuse to believe, is an act of willful disobedience. When pe pardon me, I'm going to be blunt. I know that's a shock to you. But we need to be these days. We've so candy-coated truth that we're in the disastrous situation that we're in. When someone tells you, oh, I can't believe in Jesus, they are lying. They are lying to themselves and they are lying to you. This book says it's not that they can't believe, it's that they are flat refusing to believe. It is cosmic treason against the high king of heaven, as one theologian accurately described it. As D.A. Carson writes, what is said here, God's wrath is not vague. It's not some impersonal principle out there of retribution that may happen someday. This is the personal response of the one and only just and holy God who comes into his own world sadly fallen into rebellion and finds few who want anything to do with him. That's cosmic treason, allow me to add. Such people, according to verse 18 of this chapter, are condemned already. I find that terrifying. Those who refuse to believe have the sword of divine justice hanging over their head right now. And that judgment has been given into the hands of of the divine son but praise God the good news the good news for believers he or she who believes that word is pistuon in the Greek it's very personal he or she the one who has a very personal one-on-one -on -one relationship of absolute trust and absolute faith and absolute confidence in Jesus 
That means you are totally committed to who He is, who He always was, who He is now, and who He ever shall be. You are totally all in for everything He ever did, and everything He ever said, everything He ever taught, and everything He represents. That's what believing in Him means. He or she who believes in the Son has, present tense, you have eternal life. You have aeonion zoein, living in your soul, in the depth of your meaning, being in the core of your being, in the core of your soul. Now, a lot of people don't think that way. Please let me help you think that way. Some people think that eternal life is something that happens in the future. It's all in the future. It's all something that's given to me after I die or, you know, I die and go into this fuzzy place. Well, you don't. But in eternal life suddenly comes to me when Jesus returns and the divine plan is all wrapped up and we enter this eternal kingdom that John talks about in the book of Revelation. No, it says right here, you have it now. The one who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a receiver of the new birth from above. The Spirit of God enters your soul and raises your dead soul to life and gives you what? Eternal life. You have eternal life living in you right now. But somebody may ask, well, now wait a minute, you die. Yeah, you do, but it's a passage. It's a journey. It's not a cessation of existence. You don't die. The soul, the real you, has a change of geography, a change of location. Oh yeah, this thing goes into the ground for a little while and becomes dust, but remember the big story. The soul lives on. It doesn't die. It goes into the personal dwelling place of God. And at the end of the divine plan, when Jesus returns, He raises that body, immortal and incorruptible, like His resurrection body, and your soul and body are joined for eternity and never separated again. But you have that hope, you have that eternal life living in the depth of your being now. Live like it. Don't forget that. He or she who believes in the Son has eternal life and everything that means and everything that brings. The believer has that life now. If you really are a recipient of the new birth that Jesus talks about in this chapter, you possess that now. But yes, it comes to full completion to full consummation in the future, the eternal future, when your body is raised. I don't know about you, but I really want that. So here's the point. Let me remind you of something. Wake up, listen. The age to come is not so totally separate from you as you may think. The age to come is not so totally separate from the present age. You have eternal life in you right now. So why don't we live like we do? We're expected to. Born-again believers possess eternal life now. Conversely, or on the other hand, this is terrifying. Believers already in the here and now, they stand condemned awaiting that final sentence to one day be carried out. Believers already enjoy the eternal life that will be consummated in the resurrection of their bodies at the parousia, the Greek, for the return of Jesus. Unbelievers stand under the looming wrath of God that will be carried out once and for all and forever in their final condemnation. So William Hendrickson reminds us, so how do we wrap this up? Remember, this, this, is, this book is bald-faced evangelistic, unapologetically evangelistic. What's the evangelistic message here? What's the implication? What's the message? What's the appeal? What's the warning? It's this. 
Do not dare harden your heart, but submit to He who is the truth from above. Receive the new birth which is from above. Accept and submit to by faith He who is the Son of God, the eternal Word made flesh. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, the divine Savior who is the divine Judge, the ultimate revealer of God and God's truth, and that by believing, by committing yourself to Him all in, if I may use that expression, you may receive pardon from the judgment, you may receive new birth, you may have eternal life in His name. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word, the truth of this Gospel, the truth of this chapter. Help these folks locally and abroad to submit to this truth and appropriate this truth in and over and through their life. Send them Your Word and send them Your Spirit to draw them to You, to draw them to the Divine Son, His truth and the salvation that only He can bring and that He came to bring. Thank you for this wonderful gospel and our wonderful journey through it. Oh, Lord God, send your Spirit. Send your Spirit with this message to do the Spirit's work and to do the work of the Word, to draw those in who are destined for salvation and to empower the minds and souls of your people the world over to empower them to face no matter what they're going through, no matter what situations or circumstances or hardships they're facing. For in the end, if they give it all to you, they will be rewarded in that life to come. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.